0: Closure, I'm Robin Farzad. Ten short summers ago, Wall Street sounded the opening creaks and squeaks of what would ultimately turn into the biggest financial collapse of our lifetimes. Worthless mortgages, insolvent banks, the rot emanated from Bear Stearns to AIG to WAMU, Lehman Brothers. It's pretty hard to imagine that all that happened now that everything is so calm. After all, the Federal Reserve and central banks the world over have since taken interest rates down to next to nothing. That stoked risk appetites, and the stock market is at all-time highs. Unemployment is back down to what they tell us are natural lows, and our central bank now has the unenviable task of hiking rates back to some semblance of normalcy. Is there even such a thing We talked to one of my favorite experts on the matter. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson. Since its move to Carytown, this market, my very favorite in Virginia, has continued to grow, recently stretching to 20,000 square feet and always keeping its soulfulness, providing products and love to Richmond RVA. Among other things, Elwood's is happy to now provide you with full-service meat and seafood department, in-house bakery, coffee and juice bar, a made-to-order food station called Create, and a dining event space called The Beat. Uh, I practice what I preach because I'm there almost every day. I love the joint. I love its stewards. I love its owners. Elwood Thompson's. Visit them at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, at the top of Carytown. Joining us is none other than Edward Harrison, former European credit markets and MA guy who actually started out as a diplomat. Um, his title now is that he's a banking and finance guru with the economic consultancy Global Macro Advisors. He tweets prolif- prolifically, focusing on global economics and corporate strategy. In past lives, he was at Deutsche Bank, Bain, the corporate executive board. Sir, how are you? What have you not done?
1: Uh-huh, yeah. Um, well, what I have not done, I haven't visited Sweden or Iceland when uh, it's uh, June 21st, the longest day of the year. That's one thing I'd like to
0: do. And yet I read somewhere that you speak Danish? I, yeah, you know, actually I speak Swedish,
1: but I've actually never been to the country, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, and, and as a result, Danish. But, you know, Danish is a lot harder than Swedish is, I have to say.
0: Do you want to meet me at the Potomac Mills and we can have uh, Swedish meatballs at the Ikea? Yeah, That would work for me. You, you yeah. are too cultured for that, <laughs> sir. There are, there are many, many bigger things on your mind right now, after all, with what we said was uh, very true. And it's hard to believe that the world was falling apart nine, 10 years ago, especially when you look at this, uh, these lines about what they tell us is a market melt-up and volatility is at lows we've not seen in years and risk is overrated and central banks are, you know, they're pushing on a string if they try to stimulate any more. Uh, have you, you know, having studied history and economics, have you seen any parallel to this in modern economic history?
1: Well, you know, I think generally speaking that the parallels are relatively heavy with regard to past periods, uh, uh, boom bust periods. I mean, for instance, I'll give you two specific periods to think about. One is uh, if you think about 29 to 33, 33 to 37 and then the uh, the double dip after 37 into 38, really, 33 to 37, everyone thought it was all over in the United States. It was still going on in Europe, and, and to a certain degree, the Great Depression. But there was an interregnum there before uh, things fell apart again. So it's not really, we're not out of the woods, so to speak, even though it's been a very long period of time. We are out of the woods from my perspective. I don't think that it's going to go back to how it is. But we have people like Janet Yellen saying that she doesn't think that we'll have a financial crisis in her lifetime. And and I'm not really as sanguine about things. Then another period that I would give you is the period of 73, 74, where actually, if you look at various markets, the Irish market the uk market when you take into account inflation some of these markets went down like 90 percent on an inflation adjusted basis and and the the period before that was a period of of great wealth of uh good economic times etc and then there was a lot of volatility right after that but eventually you got to a much more boom type period in the 80s so you could say that every 40 years or so there is what I would consider a major uh, depression. There was the deflationary depression uh, 80 years ago. Then 40 years ago, there was an inflationary uh, depression. And then now we've done much better, and we're calling it the Great Recession as opposed to a depression.
0: Edward, I want to take you back to August seven, two thousand and seven. I know you like to wonk out on this stuff, and I can't get—I can't get my head around this. I went to the Federal Reserve's website. The Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System has minutes and statements from the Federal Open Market Committee, which decides uh, its target interest rate. After all, um, this on August seven, two thousand and seven, approximately ten years ago, the FOMC decided today to keep its target for the federal funds rate at five and a quarter percent. That's my emphasis added. Economic. Growth was moderate during the first half of the year. Financial markets have been volatile in recent weeks. Credit conditions have become tighter for some households and businesses, and the housing correction is ongoing. Nevertheless, the economy seems likely to continue to expand at a moderate pace over coming quarters, supported by solid growth and employment. And incomes and a robust global economy. Uh, it says although the downside risks to growth have increased somewhat, the committee's predominant policy concerns remains the risk that inflation will fail to moderate as expected. Uh, okay, Mister Harrison, five and a quarter percent. Where are we now? We
1: are at one percent.
0: And and there's all this hand wringing right now about taking rates up? I mean, there's an enormous chasm between one percent and five and a quarter percent. Aren't they telling us? The Bureau of Labor Statistics, that we are at full employment right now. That's right. Yeah.
1: And, you know, actually, it's an interesting case that you make there. If you look at it in terms of inflation and in terms of interest rates, what we've seen consistently since the Volcker days is cycles that are where the, 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 the top and the bottom of the interest rate channel is lower each successive time. Because if you think about it, uh, they we were at five percent. We went down to zero. The time before that, we were at a similar level, but then we went down to one percent. So if we're only at one percent now, let's say we get up to two percent, two and a half, or three percent at some point in time, it's really you know you you you're guaranteed of going to zero percent at, uh, at at some point in time. So the concept that. Uh, we definitely are going to normalize, and it's going to stay normal, and we're not going to hit zero again. I think is is a bit uh, it's a bit far fetched when you look at the history of the last two or three cycles.
0: But I'm still am I am I crazy to be fixated on five and a quarter percent? I know you look at things in real terms uh, versus nominal terms, but. That is in enormous ways from where we are right now at target interest rate policy. For a stock market at an all-time high, even though it's a nominal all-time high, and I know that you know, we've round-tripped over 15, 16 years, um, housing has recovered, risk appetites are there, they tell us unemployment is below 5%. There's no true sign of persistent um, you know, wage-driven inflation. So then, is it not an apples-apples comparison to me to say that this economy should be able to tolerate its pre-emergency Fed funds level.
1: Well, I think that it's not uh, it's not wrong for you to say that. I think really what we're talking about is a monetary uber uh, alles type of regime here, meaning that. Uh, fiscal policy it has been taken off the table. And to the degree that you want any sort of stimulus, you do have a disconnect between the financial economy and the real economy. Because think about it. So 5.5%, let's say you have 25 or 3% inflation, you're talking about 2% real rates. We have probably one4 to 1.7% on the PCE deflator, whether you're using core or you're using the— Whoa, the, the,
0: whoa, whoa, you're dropping the PCE deflator <laughs> on me. I didn't start this with an NC-17 rating. I think the FCC is going to— oh, so, Whoa, whoa, PCE you know, deflator, Whoa!
1: The the way that the Fed looks at the numbers, they don't look at you know the the inflation rate that you and I look at. They say L- let's look at what people are consuming, and then domestically how we get to the the real number there as opposed to the 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 number with inflation in in it. Let's back out uh, inflation that way, and that number. If you take that, you subtract that from the one percent that we have in interest rates, you get a negative number. So in real terms, right now. We have what's called financial repression, which means that the Fed is keeping rates below what we would consider the long term. Uh, And you know, Janet Yellen, she admits this. The Fed, they admit that you know they are still adding stimulus to the economy. But what are you supposed to do when you're when you're trying to increase rates slowly uh, and not? tank the economy but you as the fed have been the only game in town over the last 6 or 7 years you know there's been no fiscal there's been no other measures of of uh, additional add to the economy other than the fed since say 2009 2010 so ultimately i think this is a uh, uh, there's a disconnect as a result of that between where asset prices are now where they have been at the tops of previous cycles, and where the real economy for average ordinary workers is, in terms of uh, their wage gains, in terms of how they feel about how things are happening.
0: Edward, let me ask you about that. Do you do you believe uh, that we are at full employment? Is that a fully loaded number? Because we've been told about all the the millions of uh, you know adult employees just dropping out the learned helplessness of the past several years, either structurally or cyclically. Um, and they're just not counted in this anymore. I mean, you, you might see that the unemployment rate is below 5%, and that's great in terms of what they teach you in Econ 101. But it surely doesn't feel to me like everyone is gainfully employed. I mean, anecdotally, there's a lot of gig work. There's a lot of making ends meet. There's a lot of kind of hustling. Um Am I am I kind of missing this? Am I am I in the wrong part of America to have my finger on that pulse?
1: No, I think that uh, your skepticism there is uh is warranted and and the reason is is because if you think about other countries where they might have full employment switzerland for example you're talking about numbers that are far lower you know japan when they had full employment we're talking two percent or less in countries like that so it's not inconceivable that that you get to that level the real problem is from the fed is they're operating under a macro assumption that says that when you get down to those levels below 4%, tending towards 2%, bad things happen with regard to inflation as a result of this sort of wage price spiral. And the reality is, is that we haven't seen that. Uh, We don't see that in the data in the U.S. We don't see that in the data in the U.K., which is also at lows that we haven't seen since 1975. And we don't see that in many other countries. Uh, The question then becomes, do you really want to uh, uh, act based upon the the paradigm, based upon the fact that inflation may come. So you have this dichotomy here where in the real economy, it could still use additional juice, but at the same time, the financial economy is doing incredibly well. So you're sort of between a rock and a hard place if you're the Fed or any other central bank, because at the end of the day, you are looking at asset prices that are pretty inflated. But at the same time, I really don't think we're at full employment.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Edward Harrison of Global Macro Advisors, a Wall Street veteran. He's been at Deutsche Bank, at Bain Consulting. He in a past life was a diplomat. I mean, sir, you are a veritable Epcot Center World Expo of experiences. You speak some German, Dutch, Swedish, Spanish, and French, as well as this mellifluous English that you are giving me today with, what was it, the PCE deflator? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, the PCE deflator.
0: Let me ask you, one stat out there out of all the noise and and kind of wonkistan stuff, if there's one stat that you believe more than anything else that cuts to the chase, that cuts to through the BS, whether it's micro or macro or Wall Street generated, what would it be?
1: It would be initial jobless claims. And and in particular the 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 average the moving average so basically, uh, you look at the number of people who are leaving the workforce, uh, not of their own will, but a- as a result of uh, you know losing their job and therefore taking jobless claims. You look at that number and get an average of over the last four weeks, that pretty much tells you where you are in the economy relative to, say, a year ago or two years ago. It really doesn't make a difference what that number is relative to 10 years ago or whether you know more people qualify for jobless benefits now today than they did a decade ago and a lot of other things. What really matters is, is over the short term, the shock associated with people Uh, losing their jobs. When you see that number starting to go up uh, at any precipitous level, say 30,000 more in a year's period or 40,000 more in a year's period, that's a really bad sign. That's a sign the economy is not doing well. When we see the the levels coming down or stabilizing, as they have at the incredibly low rates, we saw today less than 250,000 people who, uh, who filed initial jobless claims in the last week. That's a very good sign that this economy can continue to grow over the, the coming uh, you know, two terms, two, two consecutive quarters.
0: And do you believe that if inflation is, is essentially non-existent, the kind that matters? I mean, I'm not talking about you know, food and, and energy inflation. They talk about the core inflation and wage spiral inflation, the likes that we haven't seen maybe since the 70s, early 80s.
1: Yeah, I think that it is. And I think the inflation that we're, we're seeing that w- that we should be concerned about is what I would call uh, you know, um, productivity inflation, let's call it. Because there's a concept out there, a guy by the name of Baumol, who died recently, a great economist, he uh, saw that when you don't have a, a lot of productivity in a specific branch of the economic sectors, let's say healthcare as an example, because you know you're you're not going to get huge improvements. There's a lot of labor that's involved in that. Education's another one. Basically. You're, people got to live who work in those sectors. And as a result of that, those people are going to uh, have wages that go up and are going to cause those particular sectors because they can't add productivity to go up more in terms of their prices. So it, the movie theaters might be another thing, or the opera mm-hmm. is going to go up relative to other prices. So people who put more money in healthcare, who put more money in prescription drugs, the elderly, they're seeing a different inflation than you and I are seeing. So that's an inflation that we can worry about. But the whole concept of the wage price spiral, I think is dead at this particular juncture.
0: Do you think there is a possibility of that huge tax cut coming down the pike? I mean, the first hundred days of the Trump administration might well be over, uh, but it, it seems like you get the impression that there are a lot of uh, people, especially in the GOP, willing to hold their noses on someone they don't necessarily uh, admire and want to kind of thump the tubs over, in order to get a tax cut, in order to get some of that, that pork barrel stimulus through.
1: Yeah, I, I really do wonder whether we will get a tax cut, because the real question is, is what kind of tax cut are we going to get, and what is it going to do to the deficit, uh, which is a hobby horse of the GOP, and what is it going to do to uh, to growth? Because you know, remember, Trump is talking about 3 and 4% growth as a result of a reduction in regulations and, and these tax cuts. And really, there's nothing that I've seen that's on the table that comes even remotely close to getting us there. And I, I, I really don't see what sort of taxes they'd be able to cut that would actually create the kind of growth that they're looking for. We, we don't see any appreciable increase in business investment. Cutting taxes, uh, cutting taxes for businesses, are they going to invest more if people aren't making more money, if wage growth is low? where Where is the, the demand going to come from? You have to have supply, meeting demand. If you're going to cut business taxes, then you should probably cut payroll taxes. That's something that cuts businesses on one side and cuts people on the other side. Because you and I, we pay into the coffers of uh, of, of the payroll taxes, as well as businesses. So if you were to cut payroll taxes, that's another thing. It would do something both for the supply and for the demand problem.
0: Um, I remember distinctly, there was a haunting line that came out of, um, was it Michael Steinhardt, the hedge fund manager, who blamed the pyrotechnics, the disasters uh, that we saw in 2008, 2009, on beautiful quote, promiscuous lending of, uh, the aughts, the early part of the decade. I mean, there were liar loans, of course, on the mortgage and, and housing formation level, but, you know, you were seeing private equity loans made at ridiculous enterprise multiples of cash flow. Um, and I'm wondering if that's the case right now, or is it much more of a refinancing bubble where I've, I've seen that any credit worthy company, even junk rated companies have been able to sell, uh, debt at very convenient terms. I remember there were some placing, you know, the University of Pennsylvania placed, what was it, a 100-year debt or 50-year debt? If you're a John Deere, if you're a McDonald's, I mean, all that all that money has kind of been embedded from the Fed's generosity. The Fed was out there buying trillions of dollars of, of assets, not just treasury securities, but mortgage-backed securities. And there was this feeding frenzy on anything that was creditworthy.
1: Yeah. You know, I haven't seen at this point, Anywhere the 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 types of problems that you're you're talking about, you know, when I was doing credit markets before, you know, we were looking at traditional companies in the TMT sectors, that is technology, media, and telecommunications. That is the media portion of those three that were spinning themselves as new media companies and that were trying to get uh, deals away that where basically their cash flow did not even cover the debt associated with the, the deal so that you, you know de facto it's kind of a ponzi that is is that they're going to have to come back uh, their, their business had better grow or they're going to be coming back for more or they're going to go bankrupt. In a lot of cases, those companies went bankrupt. And we saw that with the telecom buildouts. We don't see anything like that happening today. But at the same time, what we do see are stretched valuations in terms of asset prices, uh, in terms of uh, deals that are underpinned by asset prices. In particular, I'm thinking about commercial real estate. So if you look at commercial real estate deals, commercial real estate is at rich valuations And the debt that you can uh, get off of that as a result of the rent that you're going to get from commercial real estate are are based upon a valuation that is not necessarily going to last. If we go into a downturn, I think that that's going to be a place to look for uh, where problems are. Another place that's also asset-based to look are autos, subprime autos in particular. Is it, that's a, a sector where we're seeing uh, problems with regard to the recovery value of the vehicles. We're seeing problems in the auto sector in terms of the ability for for companies to actually get cars off the lots without actually giving discounts. So that's also a strain there. And and again, asset prices are are a problem in, in that sector. But really, are those sectors? As large as the housing sector was, I mean, the the housing sector was so large before that. I think that that's why it was the mother of all of all crises, and we're not really seeing the same sort of problems in that sector that we saw before.
0: Edward, are you at all worried about uh, the 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 mini crisis uh, driven by Amazon in retail emanating out to commercial property? Commercial property. I mean, if you look at REITs. They've had a spectacular 15 years. Um, in that in that hunt for yield, the global search for yield, not just with the United States taking rates to, zero, but you saw this the world over. You saw negative rates in some of your favorite Scandinavian countries. Look at Switzerland. Look at the most developed countries in Europe. Look at what's happened in Japan. Again, uh, unable to take rates up to a natural level. Um, Are you worried that if there's something that that maybe is, is systemic and structural with stores going bankrupt left and right, inundating the system with property and potentially taking banks down with it?
1: Yeah, I'm concerned that the smaller to medium-sized banks uh, are the ones that are most leveraged to the commercial real estate sector, and that those companies will not be able to withstand the, the onslaught. And as a result of that, it's going to be a contraction of lending that will make the next downturn more severe. But I'm not concerned that that's going to be a systemic issue. You know, I'm not concerned that the Citibank's and the Bank of America's of the world are going to go under as a result of commercial real estate. So if we talk about crisis, we're talking about a lesser crisis here than than before. Maybe it's a crisis of the order of the, uh, the S&L crisis. Which Hold up. A pretty Isn't it
0: crisis. amazing? Again, I'm interrupting you. Isn't it amazing that we're looking back at that as... So tiny in comparison to right, what we saw right. in 2008. I mean, you could go, you could go back You're to YouTube and look at the, you know, look at the videos of of Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings in the SNL crisis. I mean, that sent us in a into a nasty, nasty, nasty recession and the Gulf War recession. And I think the analogy is important here because the Fed took rates down, and the Greenspan Fed ratcheted rates up very surprisingly in 1994 and that is arguably the last time we saw a bond bear mall wall street I'm wondering if there's any institutional memory that knows that bonds can lose value too
1: I I don't know if there is. I mean, because I remember that that episode uh, uh, fondly because, you know, people who I graduated with from college uh, were losing their jobs on Wall Street as a result of this bond bear market. And, you know, I had graduated into New York. New York was hit really hard. You know, you saw a lot of overbuild in terms of commercial real estate in New York. And uh, essentially, no apartment buildings were built for something like six years between 1991 and 1997 it really took a long time to recover in new york for commercial real estate and when you added on all of the lbo fallout all of the uh, the junk bond fallout, the milken thing and so forth uh drexel burnham going under that was a really calamitous time, the SNL crisis for the United States. That's, and so when we look at that and we laugh and we say that, you know, that was a pretty difficult bubble and people are talking about that as if it's a non-bubble, that's when I go back to Janet Yellen's comment about we won't see another uh, crisis in my lifetime. I don't think that that's a crisis that, is out, that we're out of the woods for. I think that that's a crisis that potentially of that magnitude, it could come back to us, uh, in, in, in uh, two or three years.
0: Edward, it's, it's something that, um, you just reminded me. My high school economics teacher was, uh, driving across the country a couple of years ago and he stopped by here in Virginia with his wife and, uh, we all went out to dinner and I was just, you know, I was driving them and I was delineating some regrets. Like I should have done this. I should have done this. I wish you had told me this when I was a bright eyed and bushy tailed 18 year old. I made so many mistakes and it, in, you know, he was telling me that you pretty much make all the decisions you can with all the best information you had at that point. In addition to the fact that your cranium wasn't as developed as it is now as a 40-year-old son, but, you know, I digress. But I asked him, Mr. Lutnus, what is normal? What defines normalcy? Is there a year that you could tell me as my high school, my beloved high school economics teacher, where things were normal, where there wasn't an asset bubble, there wasn't an unusual amount of stimulus, um, where there wasn't a, a, you know, uh, a stock market bubble or uh, a war going on that you could say all of the all of the 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 kind of the exogenous stuff's taken out everything is not too hot not too cold we're at normal mm-hmm. and he that's immediately you know he immediately answered back that's my meaning of life question he immediately answered back he said i like to say that normal is how the world was uh, when you graduated from college how the jobless environment was how the job market was and i remember i graduated from college in 98 i took the series 7 flunked the series 7 my first time i didn't study hard enough for it i almost got fired from goldman for that but anyway yeah you know that's that's a lot of stuff i'm telling you but i remember that vlad um it was uh, boris yeltsin was teetering uh, there were rumors of a big hedge fund failure in New York. Offers were being rescinded to people in my analyst class at Goldman. And I came of age, and I passed my Series 7 into this period of hyper-volatility, uh, where Wall Street was collapsing and rallying at the same time. And then, and then the, the, the Federal Reserve stimulus gave birth to the great NASDAQ bubble, which collapsed spectacularly. Do you buy that? I mean, I know it's a long-winded way of asking you, or is there another way of calculating quote-unquote normal?
1: Well you know when you when you put the whole thing that way, because I remember that period as well, I was in European credit markets and nothing was trading the you know the bid ass spreads between what people would buy and sell for were so you know it was they were just like indicative pricing. It wasn't like actual trades that were gonna happen because everything was so far apart. Um, th- that was a calamitous period. So if that's the normal, <laughs> that's a very bad normal. Uh, I would say that uh, you know a normal. Uh, and interestingly, by the way, uh, we had, if you recall, there were the 25 percent or the 20 percent increases in the S&P every single year right, between right. something like 94 and 99. So it was about 97-ish, 96, where Greenspan gave his irrational exuberance comment. I would say that if you could look back and say mid-cycle pauses, especially after the the great bond sell-off that we saw in '94, '85, uh, and '95. Those are the times that things are most normal. And then the question is: is what do you do from a policy perspective to make sure that that normalcy uh, lasts? Can it last? Because really, think about it. I mean, we were normal for a year before Alan Greenspan said irrational exuberance. So. And then there was another two years before we had the the calamity that you talked about. And then another two years before things, you know, reached the stratosphere and everything collapsed in, in, in the year 2000. So I think that, you know, when you look back. Uh, it's difficult. Uh, you're, there's only a very fleeting period within any, within any cycle where you could say that maybe it's normal. In this cycle, where would that be? I mean, th- that would be the question. Where, where, where was it most normal in, in this last cycle?
0: And I doubt that the world has ever been as interconnected as it is now. I know it sounds cliche, Tom Friedman y to, to make that observation, but. It's not like we're acting as an island when the Fed is considering 1.5% versus a target of, say, five and quarter percent I mean, every other security on the planet is hardwired to that. You look at LIBOR, you look at the uh, taper tantrum, the mere suggestion in 2013 that the Fed is going to have to pull away the punch bowl, causing all sorts of consternation in credit and stock markets all over the world. It just makes it a lot harder for us to attend to our um Economic self determination, if you will, from a monetary policy perspective.
1: Well, I agree definitely, and I think that uh, if if you ask the question of when was it last normal, you have to go way back. I don't think there's anything in this cycle that's normal. When you mention you know one and a quarter, one percent interest rates, basically you have to go back before that all happened to see anything normal. And I don't really think, given. Uh, the the housing bubble that there was a a, a period in in that uh, particular upswing maybe two thousand and three uh, where things were normal two thousand and four somewhere around there but very fleeting periods in time before uh, you know things started to unravel it, it go go into the stratosphere
0: uh, stress test this for me Edward in the fifteen minutes or so that we have left suppose Janet Yellen we don't know if she's long for the Federal Reserve there are mumbles that that. Uh, you know, maybe Donald Trump is looking to appoint Gary Cohn, one of his you know, his, his economic advisors, another Goldman Sachs person. Maybe they're going to put in another, uh, you know, more neoclassical economist. I don't know, someone from the Stanford School. Uh, but she only has so much time to assert whatever her plans were from a, a, a targeting perspective. Is she justified, for example, in coming out, looking at asset markets and joblessness right now, and having uh, an unannounced rate hike of say 50 basis points and if she did something like that would you see a repeat of maybe the crash that we saw in 1994 again i'm focusing on the fact that we were at five and a quarter percent before all this has happened and even after she's increased incrementally albeit a lot slower than imagine we're still at below two percent
1: yeah i think she it it wouldn't be that the market wouldn't be able to take it, uh, that, that we wouldn't have prepared for it. There are too many doves that, uh, that would uh, vote against it. it. It just it wouldn't go over well. And, and the reason it wouldn't go over well is, is because uh, of the fact that inflation is now uh, below 2% and declining. And if you were to do that, basically what would happen- is you would take the 80 or 90 basis points, 100 basis points differential in the yield curve and then turn it into 50 and, and eventually you could get into a, 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 an inverted yield curve uh, period which was a which would be a harbinger of recession. I mean we, the yield curve is incredibly flat, Right now, the biggest problem for the Fed basically is, is is the same problem that Greenspan had before, even though you might think that I could hike these rates up. And he was doing it very deliberately, you know, 25 basis points a meeting. Uh, unfortunately for him, the yield curves, uh, the, 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 the ponders on Wall Street were saying – you know, actually, we're not responding to to what you're doing, and and the same thing is true now, and that's a sign that there's fragility in in the uh, in the real economy. And it, for me, it all goes back to the the dichotomy between the real economy and the financial economy, especially now that we see that inflation is not going anywhere. The reality of a real economy is that a lot of the gains have gone to the the top level. Uh, Of of society, and that you know, ordinary people are not seeing outsized wage gains. There's not any huge demand growth uh, there as a result of that. There's not going to be any uh, wage inflation. There's not going to be any uh, consumer price inflation uh, as a result of that. And uh, so, if she jacks up rates, what we're going to see is is uh, the yield curve flattening, and that's going to be a harbinger for problems to come.
0: Full disclosure, we're talking to Edward Harrison of Global Macro Advisors, a credit guru, one of the, the favorite uh, people that I follow on the Twitters. What is it, credit write-downs? That's right. Yeah. I love that account as, as you are intensely followed, sir. Um, I do have a question regarding the banks. Why is it I walk into a Bank of America and it's it's very sparsely staffed and the attitude there is like they're doing me a favor if they open me a checking account or a savings account. Shouldn't you be elated at money costing nothing for this long if you're a bank?
1: Well, you know, I wonder uh, are they how, what they think about retail deposits now in the uh, aftermath of the 2008 debacle? Because you saw everyone uh, taking a grab at retail deposits because at the uh, there was a time and period where you were you didn't matter, Robin, because at the end of the day they could get uh, they could get their funding in the wholesale markets. But we saw how fleeting uh, wholesale deposit uh, wholesale uh, um, funding was when when that whole market dried up. So I think that you might get a better reception if you tried to go into the bank today and and, and open an an account. Uh, I think that if you were to, and in fact, let me say my experience has been recently that, and I don't know how they got my name. But uh, a lot of different banks: HSBC, Citibank, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. I've been getting solicitations about, uh, you know, open an account with our our private uh, client uh, service group, and we'll, you know, fund your account. We'll give you an extra five hundred bucks or something like that. I think that what we're seeing now is uh, really they're saying, look, it's not the top one percent, but it's more like the top ten percent are still doing pretty well. Uh, let us uh, go down the path from from the top one percent to the top ten and try to uh, capture those people and make them our clients because that's where we're going to get the money. But if you're an ordinary citizen, you know, who only has a, a two hundred and fifty dollars in your uh, savings account, then the banks basically they don't really care anymore.
0: But I would think there'd be a broader competition for. Um, restive cash. If other assets are doing really well, again, it harkens back to Mr. Lutness and Econ 101 and Econ 102. I hope you're listening, good sir. You've been a great influence, though I have no idea what the economy has done over the past 20 years. Um, Shouldn't there be more of a competition for my money? I mean, real estate is hot. um, Rents are hot. REITs are hot. The stock market is soaring. Small cap, mid cap, large cap. Emerging markets are resurgent again. uh, But it's not like the banks are really competing for my money. They'll put up a poster and they'll say Super Saver balances of $10,000 and above get 0.95%. And that's just been going on for 5-6 years now. Right. Yeah, and
1: so, you know, if you have those Super Saver balances, uh what they're looking for is, is they're looking for uh, you know, um, enough cash per customer so that it warrants their taking that customer on, given the number of contacts that they have to have with you. If you go into a Citibank, let's say I, you know, I, uh, a Citibank in New York City uh, in Midtown, and you go into that branch and you see sort of how it's staffed and and uh, what's available there. You know what they're looking to do is is they're try they're looking to minimize the number of contacts they have with uh, the customers per dollar that they're, they're putting up there because all of that's overhead. And so you know there's no there's no market for you for your restive capital because unless you have enough capital, hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars to put to work the The overhead necessary to to maintain you as a client is just not worth it's not worth it for them uh they want to automate it as much as possible in order to justify your your being there and so that's what we've seen that's why we've seen more automation more sort of uh um, and and Citibank, by the way, just recently they've changed their uh, the, um, uh, they've uh, uh, stratified their levels of service. They have City Gold now. They also have, I think, City Priority, and then they have the City Basic. And City Gold uh, is 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 the is like the uh, the upper middle class, upper class, non private client service uh, offering that they have. City Priority is sort of like you know. We're willing to uh, to give you uh, you know some additional services, but really, actually, uh, not that many more. And then the basic thing that you get, they really want to
0: automate as much as possible. Are you surprised that Goldman Sachs is still dabbling in the kind of retail banking experience?
1: I am. Yeah, I think that uh, ultimately. The only reason that uh, Goldman would have any retail presence is because they understand the stability of retail deposits. But otherwise, I mean, they're they're not equipped. It's not in their DNA to to be anywhere close to to retail. I think the the model that we had before uh, of uh, the investment bank only is dead. I mean, unless you're a Lazard Frere, if you you have a balance sheet in your uh, sales and trading organization like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, you really need to have um, a stable deposit base on the other side. And so that may be why they're still
0: doing it. And finally, on on automation, I mean, that you are seeing there that it it seems like Wall Street is resurgent, dividends are paid out, stress tests are being passed. uh, But you know you 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 have a almost definitionally now this need for a, a smaller kind of man hour density you can automate things you can um bring in artificial intelligence i'm looking at the goldman sachs and morgan stanley examples i'm looking at these brokers who are existentially worried that the entire you know equity investing game has been kind of sucked into index and etf investing um, I wonder how Wall Street's going to look like coming out of this. If it's if it's still really chastened from the horrors of 2008 and the disruption of 2008
1: 2009. Yeah, you know, like robo advisors. I'm thinking more of the Charles Schwabs when you start saying that, or even the Fidelities of the world. Because I, I had a conversation uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, with a gentleman um, from Schwab about uh, you know the threat of Robo or the the uh, what I would call the opportunity uh, of Robo uh, advisors. And honestly, you have the same pressures there in that business that you have in retail banking. That is that uh, the question becomes how many touches do we have to have? Uh, how many how much money does a client have to have before each touch that we have with the client? becomes uh, cost prohibitive and to the degree that uh, you know uh, cost pressures are, are on us and that you' not you know the uh, the money that we're making per trade per activity is going down how do we automate uh, you know uh, the system enough Robo advise our clients in order to get away from uh, to get our cost structure down there's an inexorable uh, uh, downward uh, uh, spin in terms of the uh, the cost structure and financial services. financial services is definitely on all sides under assault. I think that this is the the next uh, industry to be to have the internet and technology really rip it apart the way that we've seen with retail the way that we've seen with uh, newspapers and media. Uh, financial services is definitely under assault as a result of technology. And they're going to be hard-pressed going forward to make sure that their cost structure is, uh, is, is good enough to deal with, uh, with what's coming down the pike.
0: Um, I do wonder, uh, you're talking about financial services there, um, <laughs> this industry has not felt true dislocation in a long time. I'm thinking back to Wall Street's you know, bloodletting in 2011 and the MF Global crisis and uh, Europe and the pigs and whatnot. When are we going to see blood on the streets of Wall Street again? And I'm not saying that gleefully. I'm just saying that as a person who studies cycles, just like you did at the top of the show and talking about the 1930s and whatnot. You can't have. Uh, a market and risk appetites going up forever. There has to be some sort of creative destruction. When do you think that that ultimately happens? Because I think that people are forgetting that things can fall apart.
1: Yeah, I think that we're looking at um, a, a two-year time frame, something of that nature at this point. This is what I'm thinking in terms of uh, the financial economy, the real economy, and also where we are in the in the rate cycle uh, uh, w- when you look at, for instance, as I was talking about the, the the flatness of the yield curve, for us to get to sort of an inverted yield curve, which I think is a good signal of of uh, of an impending recession, I, we're going to need you know three or four more hikes. And given where inflation levels are, I don't think that we're going to get uh, the hikes as quickly as we might have done. Interestingly, though, if you look at something like price to sales. On the S and P 500, we're really at the levels of 2000 already, and and that should be a number that uh, moves up and down cyclically that has some meaning over business cycles. You're not price to sales isn't necessarily going to change dramatically uh, from you know one cycle to the next cycle, and we're at levels now that uh, that we saw at the peaks of the internet bubble. So. That tells you that we're we're not that far away from a level of excess, one or two years uh, before that. That's going to be something that's going to cause blood on Wall Street. And so I'm looking at that sort of time from 18 months, 24 months. Uh, that's that's kind of uh, where I am on that.
0: Edward Harrison, Mr. Credit Write Downs, banking and finance specialist with Global Macro Advisors, veteran Wall Street guy. Uh, a cell a line heartthrob, I've been told. You're going to be featured in GQ or something. You know, that's how you get the heartthrob rated city in J.P. Morgan. I mean, they'll give you eight percent risk free. Uh, thank you so much for finally joining us. I know I've been badgering you for a good year or two.
1: It's been good to finally get in touch and to uh, to talk to you. And now you have you have me down on record as saying eighteen to twenty four months. So if by two thousand and nineteen my.
0: Uh, my, my call doesn't come out you can call me out on it well you'll be treating meatballs at ikea full disclosure we are on npr1 a fine app check it out and on itunes at fulldradio.com on twitter we're at full D Radio. and on facebook.com slash full all the links are there all the background information all the organ music really We are inverted dovish hawks in nominal terms. Although the downside risks to our growth have increased somewhat, full disclosure predominant policy concern remains being as badass as possible week in, week out. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.